service. Badlands listeners, are you here? Are you with me? Are you too tired to go to bed? Too riled up to stay home? I know I am. This is another podcast that comes after the podcast. Welcome to Badlands, the rap party. Welcome to the Badlands bonus episode, another thing we like to call the rap party. And just like that other show, this is a show that comes after the show, a voyage from one episode of Badlands to the other, the back lot breakdown of sorts. On this bonus episode, we are talking about Jane Fonda, Ethan Hawke and Paul Schrader's first Reformed, the Coen brothers, plus my recommendations and your movie-focused voicemails, texts, DMs, and more Badlands listeners. All right, let's get into it. Greetings, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the rap party. Let's dive right into Jane Fonda. Yes, Jane Fonda, daughter of Henry Fonda, brother of Easy Riding Peter Fonda, aunt to Bridget Fonda, not only a great actress, but also an activist, so beloved that she was once named the fourth most admired woman in the world, if you can believe that. But she was also so hated that her face was used as target practice in urinals at military bases all over the country. And that hatred stemmed from a 10-day tour she took of North Vietnam back in 1972, a trip that earned her the nickname Hanoi Jane and forever cemented her as either a patriot or a traitor in the eyes of a pretty much a divided nation, not too different from right now. It also put her in the crosshairs of the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States. She was watched heavily by the powers that be because she spoke out. She was an actress who was unafraid to be political. Uh, lots of actresses were political then. Lots of musicians were political then. So, you know, wasn't exactly a profile in courage. But Jane Fonda never won to uh, mince words and not speak her mind. And I think that is admirable no matter what. Jane Fonda also wound up uh, getting arrested in 1970 in Cleveland, booked for suspicion of drug smuggling. According to Jane, the reason that she was locked up for the night was so that the government could discredit her, and perhaps that that would lead to colleges and universities canceling her upcoming appearances where she would be speaking out against the Vietnam War. Maybe you've seen Jane Fonda's mugshot from that night. It's one of the most iconic mugshots of all time. It's awesome. I put it right up there with David Bowie's mugshot. Jane's got her fist raised in the air. She just looks badass. She's got those bangs. Uh, This wasn't the only time she was arrested, though. She was put in cuffs another four times, I believe the most recent being just a few years ago in 2019, at the age of 81. (laughs) 81! Fighting the fight, protesting in Washington, D.C. All right, back to the 1970 arrest, however. Again, this is the height of the Vietnam War. President Richard Nixon is in office. There's protests. The hippie movement is crashing and burning as we've covered over in Disgraceland a bunch of times. Conspiracy theories are running rampant. And it's around this time that Hollywood starts to reflect the paranoia of the zeitgeist, the paranoia of the day. The 1970s 70s ushers in this decade of paranoid psychological thrillers, including three movies made by director Alan J. If I'm pronouncing this wrong, I apologize. Pakula? Pakula? I should know. I don't. Alan J. Pakula. We're going to say that. These films by Pakula have been dubbed his Paranoia Trilogy. These films are Clute, 
which is incredible. The Parallax View and All the President's Men, also an incredible movie. Clute was the first, uh, starring Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Came out in the summer of 1971, just about six months after Fond Jane Fonda was arrested in Cleveland. Uh, that arrest I just talked about. The movie's got paranoia. Yes, we know this. I've said that word about a thousand times now. It's got conspiracy theories. It's got surveillance. All these same things that Jane Fonda is actually experiencing in her real life at the time as a vocal opponent of the war in Richard Nixon. And that's what we got into in our full episode on Jane Fonda. And all of this has got me thinking, what is the greatest paranoid psychological thriller of all time? Is it Clute? Is it The Conversation? Uh, that's Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman. Is it The Manchurian Candidate? Uh, the Sinatra one or the, the Leah Schreiber remake? Is it Blowout with John Travolta? That's a great one. Is it even from the 1970s? I think all these movies I mentioned are from the 70s. Maybe Manchurian Candidate is, uh, yeah, that's earlier for sure. Maybe it's more recent. I'm having a blank right now. I'm thinking of recent psychological thrillers. But either way, I know you guys got me covered. So that's the question. Okay, what's the greatest paranoid psychological thriller of all time? 617-906-6638. Tell me what you got. Let me know your opinions. You can leave a voicemail. You can leave a text. Speaking of which, you know this, we have all these different conversations going on regarding film and music right now. Lots of different topics. We're going to click through a bunch here in this bonus episode. So buckle up. Let's start with a voicemail here from Lisa in the 907. Hey, Jake, this is Lisa from the 907 calling in to respond to your question on Badlands Rap Party about the most iconic bad guy. What I want to say is I know who the most iconic bad guy actor is, and that is the late, great Alan Rickman. He plays Hans Gruber in Die Hard. He plays the sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, who, by the way, has the best lines in the movie. For a decade, he plays Professor Severus Snape. We didn't know whether he was the bad guy or the good guy till the very end of the series. And he even plays Harry in Love Actually, a husband who's thinking about cheating on his wife. I vote for Alan Rickman. He's the man. He makes every villain he's played that much better. Thanks for taking my call. I hope you're doing great, and I keep wait to listen. can't wait to listen to what you got next. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Score one for the Alan Rickman fans out there. You know, I've seen a bunch of those films. And uh, because of this, I should have had Mr. Rickman higher on my list. I didn't. I uh, should have at least mentioned him when I posed the question of who was the greatest Hollywood villain. Uh, but I didn't. So thank you for bringing Alan Rickman back into my focus, Lisa. I appreciate that. Great choice. Uh, let's check out this voicemail from Justin in the 540. Okay, Jake, this is Justin from the 540, your local insightful hillbilly. Bad guys, the most iconic bad guys, actually bad guys that you were rooting for, however you want to look at it, I'm going to have to say it is Michael Douglas's character in Falling Down. I have never in my life rooted for someone so hard, all the way up to the end, of course, because he's simply a psycho, but like I said, yeah, Michael Douglas and Falling Down, that, that movie is just, if you're having a bad day and you can't stand the whole world and you've just had it with everybody in the day, watch that movie and you'll feel much better. Deuces. All right, Justin, thank you, man. Everyone needs an insightful hillbilly in their life. Thanks for being mine. I appreciate it. I saw Falling Down when it came out in the theaters, I think. 
back in 1993. I looked that up. I didn't have that at the top of my head. But I have not seen Fallen Down as an adult. I didn't love it, dude. I didn't love it when it came out when I saw it. I didn't love the character. And without having seen it in years, if I had a guess... And I probably never articulated this to myself at the time because I was too young. But if I had to guess, the reason I didn't like it probably had more to do with sort of the the 90s story production of it all. Um, and again, this is a guess. My point being that the 70s were really the decade for what Quentin Tarantino calls the revenge genre movie, which is what Falling Down is. So perhaps it would have been edgier, more violent and authentically violent, I should say, had it been produced a couple decades earlier, uh, like Taxi Driver or, or Death Wish were. But hey, what do I know? Either way, Justin, you've inspired me to go rewatch Falling Down, so I will. Um, <laughs> uh, my wife showed, speaking of Michael Douglas, who's in Falling Down, my wife showed me this meme the other day. Uh, someone posted this meme. It's a picture of, of Michael Douglas from from the 80s, or from the 90s, I should say. And his hair was sort of, he had that you know parted hair in the middle. And it said, uh, remember when in the 1990s we thought there was an entire genre of film of Michael Douglas ruining his life <laughs> through affairs with, with uh, obsessive women? And that's sort of, uh, that's how I remember Michael Douglas. I think his most iconic roles, aside from Wall Street, are the ones where, you know, Basic Instinct and uh, uh, whatever whatever the Sharon Stone one is. Wait, is that the Sharon Stone? I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of those. I need to see them. All right, let's check out this voicemail from the 860, chiming in on my take on M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, that movie we were discussing a couple bonus episodes ago. Here it is from the uh, 860. Jake, the Toto from the 860. I'm not going to lie, man. I can't get on board with your science take. That movie was terrible. Aliens come invade a planet that's 90% water and water is their you know their kryptonite like get out of here this is a swing away like I, I don't know it was a reach for the swing away and the little girl leaving the, the water glass all around it was just I don't know couldn't do it um, I'm one of the people who went to the box office spent my money and left disappointed so uh I don't think quoting the box office numbers is uh is quite the uh the bar with which we're gonna judge M Knight's sophomore film. I believe it was a sophomore film. It was it is his third. Either way. Disappointed, but love your shit. All right, eight six oh, I love your take here. I totally get your disbelief in the concept, but you know, suspended disbelief and all that man. All right. Yeah. Water is their kryptonite and they visited earth and that is 90% water, like you say, but we don't really know the reason why do we, I don't think that's revealed in the movie. Maybe it was a risk worth it for them to travel all the way to earth, despite the fact that it's 90% water. We're humans. Okay. Right. We can't fly, but that hasn't stopped us from taking the risk to go to the moon. Has it? Or to just, you know, fly from Florida to Boston, as I seem to be doing so often lately. And as for using the box office, barometer. For me, that's a better temperature check than checking the reviews. Movie reviews bore me unless it's like Pauline Kale or something like really kind of, you know, that was done years ago and we have so much context on the film. Those are the types of movie reviews I read 
I know I'm kind of contradicting myself here, but I don't look to a movie review to tell me or the critics to tell me if the movie's good. Not that you're saying that, but I'm just assuming if we're not going to use the box office for a barometer, then criticism would be the next likely barometer. And for me, film criticism is more subjective and more about the person writing it is than it actually is about the film. I'm going to stop ranting. I appreciate your voicemail, even though you don't agree with my take. Keep it coming. Let's get into it. Let's check out another voicemail here. We had a Humphrey Bogart episode come out in Badlands. A couple episodes ago, maybe been the last one, I can't remember. Uh, and this message from the 207 is on Bogart. Okay, when it comes to Humphrey Bogart movies, it's got to be Treasure of the Sierra Madre. The story, you know, Paradise, the, the kind of Paradise Lost parable and all that, that's great. And I mean, then you've got all the other ancillary reasons. You know, the old man dance, when they find the gold, that's friggin' to die for. And it, that movie gave us the famous Bacchus. We don't have to show you no stinking botches. I love it. All right, buddy. Keep up the good work. Yo, John, um, I'm running to Turner Classic Movies right now to watch Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I've never seen it. So thank you, and I will report back. Let's check in with my man Ish in the 781. Yo, Jake, what up? Your boy Ish here. Father-son combos. Martin Sheen. Charlie Sheen. Emilio Estevez. I think they've been in one movie all together, the three of them, but definitely done a one-two punch here and there. And then Denzel Washington and John David Washington. He was in Tenant. He was in The Black Klansman and a bunch of other things. Anyways, keep up the good work. Deuces. Yo, great voicemail-ish. As always, yes, on the sheen, Estevez, Troika, and Denzel, and John David Washington. I feel like this father-son duo doesn't get enough action. Uh, John David Washington has that new movie, Creator, coming out soon. This weekend, actually. You guys excited about this? The reviews look good. Scary. Kind of frightening. AI scares the shit out of me, if I'm being honest with you all. Uh, let me know if you go see it. Let me know if it's any good. 617-906-6638. Leave me a voicemail on your thoughts on The Creator. Uh, let's check out this other voicemail here on the subject of acting families. I believe this subject was posed because of the episode we did on Carrie Fisher going back that far. Am I forgetting someone else before then? Anyways, we're doing Jane Fonda this week, so that's applicable as well. Anyways, Joe from the 414 on Actor Families. Jake, Joe Quinto from the 414, just calling in to respond to your actors or actresses with famous actor, actresses, parents. Um, this is a newer one, but uh, Maya Hawk of the Stranger Things fame uh, has a pretty awesome tandem of actor, actress, parents, uh, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. I think that's a pretty deadly combo there, if you ask me. Thank you for everything you do. Keep it going. Rock and roll. Yo, Joe, I love the newer suggestion of Maya Hawke and uh, her incredibly talented parents, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. I have more on Ethan, coincidentally, coming up later in this episode, this bonus episode. But I love, love, loved Maya Hawke in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and in pretty much everything I've seen her in so far. Uh, good one, Joe. Appreciate it. All right, Terry in the 208. Let's close it up with Terry here. Terry, what do you got? Hey, Jake, it's Terry, way out west in the 208 in Idaho. Anyway, I um, wanted to get back to you. You had asked me about um, the fourth book in different seasons by Stephen King when I called in and said that Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption was one of the good movies that was made 
um, or books into a movie. And yes, the body was made into um, Stand By Me and Apt Pupil remained Apt Pupil. The fourth story was called The Breathing Treatment, and I do not remember that story. I looked it up, um, odd story about a gal that was pregnant and anyway, decapitated but was still using the breathing method and her baby was delivered by the doctor who taught it to her. But anyway, it has been in pre-production a couple of times and they just haven't seemed to be able to get it into movie form. But anyway, again, like I said, I don't remember it. I probably need to revisit it. And then most recently you were talking about acting families. Well, here is a quick rundown of several families, not going to go into details. There's a lot of great actors here. we got the Bridges family with Lloyd, Bo, and Jeff. We've got Clooney's with Rosemary and George. We've got the Coppola-Cage relationship, the Fonda's with Henry, Peter, and Jane, and it sounds like you're doing something on Jane next week. Um, Houston's John and Angelica, and then we have the wonderful Sutherland boys, Donald and his boy, Kiefer. Anyway, that's just a bit of a rundown. Hope you're doing well, and keep on doing what you're doing. Down the road, buddy. Bye. All right, Terry, thanks for doing a little research and looking into the the breathing treatment, which was part of Stephen King's different seasons. Not sure if I actually read that one. I feel like I didn't. I'm always talking about how great this book of four novellas uh, is, and it's dawning on me that I don't think I read one of them. Uh, I'm a fraud like everyone else. What can I say, Terry? Uh, great rundown, though, of famous Hollywood acting families. And yes, you are correct. We have an episode on Jane Fonda out right now. So go check that one. All right. 617-906-6638 to leave me a voicemail like Terry, Joe, Ish, and John, and Justin, and the guy whose name I didn't catch who didn't like my science take. Or if the sound of your own voice ain't your bag, then you can just send me a text to 617-906-6638. Just like the 361 who sent in this incredible meme. And this is uh, applicable to the rap party and to the after party because it's music and film content. But as you know, we have a recent episode on Sigourney Weaver and we've covered Danzig already a lot in uh, various forms over in Disgraceland. And the meme just says, uh, it's an image and it just says in the image, at the top of the image, it says Danzig or Sigourney Weaver. And then there's one, two, three, four, 16 photos stacked on top of each other, uh, alternating between Danzig and Sigourney Weaver that look wildly similar. This is particularly horrifying to me because um, I've been told, and so has my wife previously, and this is a uh, very humble brag that my wife looks like Sigourney Weaver. Maybe I'm learning now that my uh, my attraction to my wife is actually uh, my attraction to Glenn Danzig. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just uh, you know I'm just looking at the receipts here. So thank you to the three six one for sending that. The seven one six writes in. Oh, the villain who haunted me for years was Charles Grodin. <laughs> <laughs> the Great Muppet Caper. Saw it in the theater when I was a kid and I could barely watch him in anything else since. He gives me the creeps. He was so evil in that movie. That's from Nicole in Buffalo. Yeah, I don't know. Charles Croden wasn't that evil. I guess he was if you're a little kid. But please tell me you've watched Midnight Run with Charles Grodin and, and Robert De Niro. Don't let your fear of Charles Grodin uh, deprive you of that cinematic masterpiece. Go watch Midnight Run. All right, from the 916. Hi, Jake. Tony, T-O-N-I, from SAC, S-A-C. I'm assuming that's Sacramento. Uh, Tony goes on to say, there are so many great books to movies, but what you don't often hear are the great movies that were horrible books. 
That's a very good point there, Tony. Tony goes on to say, one movie that I love, Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. Great movie. Beautiful use of music paired with multimedia visuals. It's funny and touching. And the book was horrible. It's like someone read the book and said, here's a mildly interesting story that I can add to and make into a great movie. And they did. Highly recommend. Don't bother reading the book. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. What are some of the movies that were made from horrible books? That's interesting. Never thought of that. Appreciate that text. Let's check out this quick series of recent texts from the 575. Hi, Jake. Love your shows. Recently discovered them and am not caught up yet. I wanted to let you know that my favorite all-time movie is True Romance. I watch it every year for my birthday since I consider it a birthday movie. If you haven't, check it out. And if you have seen it, I hope you love it. I fucking love True Romance. Of course I do. And welcome to the show, 575. Appreciate you. So much I love about True Romance, I don't even know where to start. I like the Bama from True Romance, played by Patricia Arquette, or is it Rosanna Arquette? I can never keep their name straight. It's Patricia. It's Patricia, right? I'm not looking. I'm just going with Patricia. But I like that the Bama, Alabama character is a carryover from Reservoir Dogs. In her past, she used to see Harvey Keitel's character, Mr. White, I believe. So much about that film is just incredible. I feel like we're going to figure out some way, guys, to do like a virtual movie hang, virtual movie night. And maybe that's the first one we screen because it's just so fun. It's such a good hangout movie. All right, what else we got here? 703 writes in, Jodie Foster movie, Hotel Artemis. Also, regarding Joan Crawford, check out Helen Hayes' autobiography where she and friends are trying to figure out how to get their kids away from her and Kirk Douglas, where she shows off her kids tied down in their beds. Ah, heavy one there. Yes, good text. Uh, have not seen Hotel Artemis, but will check out. The 909 writes in, hello, my name is Amber. A good book that is becoming a movie in October with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro is Killers of the Flower Moon. Great true story about the abuse of the Osage tribe in Oklahoma. Uh, I say that right? Osage? I don't know. People poisoning and killing Native Americans to get their head rights and properties in the 1920s. I'm very aware of this film. I have not read the book and I cannot wait to see the movie. Uh, I'm sure you guys are pumped too. All right, let's see. What else? A couple more here. Let's get into the 303 Favorite question mark, says the 303. No, but here are a few off the top of my head regarding Hollywood families. Martin Sheen, Charlie Sheen, and Emilio Estevez. We talked about them earlier. Blythe Danner, Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, don't forget Gwyneth's dad, who uh, was the coach in The White Shadow. John Voight and Angelina Jolie, of course. Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis. And don't forget Tony Curtis. Come on. Double points. Bruce Willis, Demi Moore, and Rumor Willis. There you go. That's, those are some good ones. I think we put this one to bed. We've covered all of them right? Um, let's see. One more. 412 writes in, Jake, I listened to the Badlands bonus episode show today and per your recommendation streamed American Boy immediately after work. Some people think I lived a crazy life in LA for a girl, but nah, man, that dude takes the cake. Totally recognize that one story from that one Tarantino movie too. Deuces from the 412. You got it, 412. Great text. I don't steer you the wrong way, right? I tell you to go watch a documentary. I mean, what the hell I'm talking about? American Boy is fucking aces. All right. All right. Oh, last one. I know I said it was the last one. Last time we spoke, I mentioned all the three one O's I was getting and I was like, where's this area code from? I should have known it's Los Angeles, but I don't dial area codes anymore, man. I just hit names on my phone. So the 415, ironically, writes in, you know, we're Los Angeles, Beverly Hills in West Hollywood. All right. I got you. I got you guys. 617-906-6638. Send me a text. 
leave me a voicemail. Uh, what's the greatest paranoid psychological thriller of all time? What's up with John David Washington's new movie, The Creator? Have you seen it? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Are you going to see it? Let me know. I'm going to be back in a flash. All right, let's talk about the music connection to this week's episode subject, Jane Fonda. Uh, Jane Fonda, of course, was in the 1980 comedy 9 to 5, in which she, along with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, plots revenge against their sexist and egotistical boss, Dabney Coleman. I mention this because the theme song to the film, written and performed by Dolly Parton, was a massive hit. It topped the country charts and the Billboard Hot 100, which at the time made Dolly only the second woman ever to go to the number one spot on both charts, the first being Jeannie C. Riley with her song, Harper Valley PTA over a decade prior. The song won two Grammy Awards and was nominated for an Oscar. The film's soundtrack, though, didn't do as well. Uh, the rest of it is uh, the instrumental score, and that just peaked around 97, excuse me, 77 on the album chart and then fizzled away. Speaking of awards, however, just four years later, in 1984, Jane Fonda herself was nominated for a Grammy Award, if you can believe that. Not for a pop song, but for Best Audiobook Narration and Storytelling Recording. Is that still a category? Slash, are podcasts part of that? They should be. Because all I do are storytelling recordings. All I do is narration. <laughs> That's not true. I do these bonus episodes. That's not narration. But uh, maybe it should be. I don't know. Maybe I could, Maybe we should start to create some hay here in the podcast industry and we start lobbying the Grammy committee for this to be uh, an actual thing that recognizes podcasters and not just audiobook narration. Because I guarantee you that Disgraceland and Badlands is more interesting to listen to than Jane Fonda's workout record for pregnancy, birth, and recovery. <laughs> which is what she was nominated for a Grammy for, which I think is hysterical. This is directly tying into Jane's side hustle, of course, workout videos, which we all know she made famous, including her first, which was released in 1982 and became the highest selling videotape at the time. And not only that, but it was the first non-theatrical home video released to top the charts, remained the top selling VHS tape for six years. Alongside the videotape, she released a vinyl LP, Jane Fonda's Workout Record, which was certified double platinum in 1984, the same year that she got that Grammy nod. All right, the number one movie from our Jane Fonda episode is The Godfather, which was not only the top film on July 12, 1972, but for over five straight months during that year, that movie just dominated, and it should have. I've often said it was the first great movie. That's kind of a bullshit take. I, you know, I'm criticizing myself now for saying that, even though I kind of believe it. It's a really hard thing for me to articulate. <laughs> you know, I could do it over a beer. I've had a hard time doing it in front of the microphone. Obviously, there are quote unquote great movies prior to 1972 in The Godfather, but there's uh, there's something that I've said before about how 
everything just comes together in the right way for this film and for filmmaking in general at the time with Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. All right, so uh, let's put that aside. I don't want to take any shit for that. I've taken enough shit for that. I still believe in what I'm saying, though. I'm just, you know, I can hear the criticism and I can even add my voice to the own my own criticism, all right? All right, but let's dig into some of Jane Fonda's better roles or just some of her roles in general. And I'm going to tick through some of these here. Uh, 1967, Barry. Barefoot in the Park, 1968, Barbarella, great film. I was obsessed with that for a period of time. I even wrote a song about it. They Shoot Horses, Don't They, in 1969. Clute, which I mentioned before, which is might be my favorite Jane Fonda performance. That's from 1970. Fun with Dick and Jane in 1977. Julia, 1977. Coming Home, 1978. She won an Oscar for Best Actress for that, just like she did for Clute. That was her second Oscar. The China Syndrome in 79. Nine to Five in 1980. On Golden Pond in 1981, which is just an acting tour de force all around by everyone in that movie. Uh, Movie's great. Agnes of God, 1985. I haven't seen that. The Morning After... Is that the nuclear war thing? It, uh, I, I don't know that I've seen that. 1986, Stanley and Iris, 1990, Monster-in-Law, 2005. That was after a 15-year absence from the screen. Restarted her career. And, uh, of course, 80 for Brady, which is her most recent film, which is a hot, steaming pile of garbage. I don't even know how that got made into a movie, and it has nothing to do with me being a New England Patriots fan. Uh, This was on a couple nights ago, and I just sort of left the TV on against my better judgment, and I watched, like, the last, I don't know, 20 minutes of it, and I, I just, I just, I had no words. I try not to be a negative person, but... I mean, I get it. She's, you know, 80 something years old. I'm not criticizing Jane Fonda or anyone in the movie. I just can't believe how bad that movie is. Then again, if you like it, that's cool. I get, you know, my mom probably likes it. I I guarantee you my mom probably likes it. Uh, The movie's not for me, whatever. All right. uh, These are just some of the most more notable Fonda roles here, by the way. So let me know, what's your favorite Fonda performance? Your favorite Jane Fonda performance? I have to say Jane Fonda because I don't mean Peter Fonda. I don't mean Henry Fonda. I don't mean Bridget Fonda. I mean Jane Fonda. What's your favorite Jane Fonda film? Do you prefer Jane Fonda in comedies? Do you prefer Jane Fonda uh, in dramas as I do in sci-fi camp like Barbarella? Or just do you prefer Jane Fonda as an activist? Or do you prefer that Jane Fonda just would go the fuck away? All right, let me know. 617-906-6638. All right. Uh, That's the scoop on Jane Fonda. That's as deep as I'm going to go in the bonus episode. If you want a deeper dive into, let's just be real. She's an icon. She's a Hollywood icon. Check out our full episode on Jane Fonda available now in your feeds. Hit me up at DisgracelandPod on Twitter slash X, whatever you want to call it, on Instagram, on Facebook. Trying to respond more on Facebook these days. Hit me up over there at DisgracelandPod, and I'll get back to you in the apps. 617-906-6638 to leave me a voicemail here or send me a text. I'm going to take a quick break and I'll be back in a flash with some recommendations. All right, this is the other recommendations part, the part of the other show where we recommend the movies and the television content, the recommendations part, the part where we discuss the movies and the television that we are recommending. This is the recommendations part here in the Badlands Rap Party bonus episode. All right, the other night I was home alone. I had the TV to myself. 
I didn't have to go through the familiar 45-minute exercise before we watch a movie to decide what movie we're going to watch and to click through numerous streaming apps and have ongoing conversation about what we don't like about things and don't want to watch until we get to the point. And by we, I mean me and my wife get to the point where 45 minutes have gone by and I'm too tired to watch a fucking movie now. So we don't watch anything. We just kind of watch music videos and make each other laugh. I didn't have to do any of that. I could just watch whatever the fuck I wanted, which without my wife, that means watching sad bastard stuff or, or horror movies or really dark films. So I picked out this film I've been wanting to watch for a while. It came out in 2017. It's called First Reformed. All right. It's Ethan Hawke and Paul Schrader. For those of you who don't know who Paul Schrader is, most famously is the writer of Taxi Driver. He's done a ton of stuff since, but just Taxi Driver is all you got to know for this, this relevant to this conversation. This is a small movie, tiny budget, and it is a great, great, great film. It's sort of a modern day lo-fi continuation of Taxi Driver and that whole revenge matic thing that I was talking about earlier. There's one quote, though, from this film from Ethan Hawke's character who plays a priest that I have not been able to get out of my head. And as a creative person and as a spiritual person, I've not been able to shake these words from Paul Schrader's script. And this is the quote, again, from Ethan Hawke's character who is in crisis and is spiraling into alcoholism and obsession and is a priest. And the quote is this, despair is a development of pride so great that it chooses one's certitude rather than admit that God is more creative than we are. That's the quote. I'm just going to leave that there for you to chew on. And if you find yourself down, if you find yourself in a rut or in the bottom of a bottle or doom scrolling social media or with your eyelids toothpicked open for too long in front of cable news mainlining that hate your neighbor trip, or perhaps you're, you're up in somebody's, a stranger's kitchen too late on a Sunday morning with your face over a mirror and dust on your nose, whatever it is, you're just plain depressed. I don't care. I encourage you to reconsider that quote to feel better. Once again, it is this, despair is a development of pride so great that it chooses one's certitude rather than admit that God is more creative than we are. It's incredible stuff. Check out the film First Reformed. All right. I also mentioned last week that we are on a lighter note, a much lighter note. Um, my wife and I are rewatching. I'm sorry. We're yeah, rewatching. I kind of half watched it before the Wet Hot American Summer series that uh, Netflix did, the reboot sort of prequel to the film that came out in 2001, and we were laughing our asses off. We just last night watched the film again, which is one of those things I don't remember watching at all, but I swear I watched it. It's hysterical, and I just fucking love this brand of absurdist humor. And it reminded me that, you know, I was once a camp counselor myself, counselor in training, never never made it beyond the training phase, but I did a summer at a camp up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. I was 14, and the oldest, the cutoff date for the campers was 13, so that was fucking interesting, man. That was interesting. 14 years old, it was a weird summer. I had to get out of town. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I was a, I was a CIT. So I, I, I loved What Hot American Summer. If you guys have not seen either the movie or the series on Netflix, check it out. I'm probably telling all of you a lot that you already know, but it's just fucking great. Also, Burn After Reading, the 2008 Coen Brothers spy thriller was on last night. I couldn't stop watching it. Amazing movie, hysterical film. I think 
burn after reading was the moment when my love for Brad Pitt as an actor just finally like really tattooed itself onto my heart. He's just so fucking funny in this movie and you can tell that he's going for it, dialing it up in a way that 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 he really normally doesn't to to impress the Coen brothers. At least that's my impression. Uh, Cuz Clooney's really dialing it up as well, you know, and then Malkovich is on a whole other level. It's hard. I was thinking it's it, it's super hard for me to pick a favorite Coen brothers movie. I love all of them, I think. I don't think there's one that I don't like. I think the greatest is probably Big Lebowski, uh, which I may have mentioned in the last rap party is a direct riff on Bogart's The Big Sleep. That's recent news to me. But here we go with another dumb question of the week. What is your favorite Coen Brothers movie? Let me know. 617-906-6638, voicemail or text. Favorite Coen Brothers movie, favorite psychological thriller. And uh, what was the other thing we were talking about? I can't remember. doesn't matter. You guys know, and you know how to reach me. 617-906-6638 with your movie recommendations, your television recommendations. You want to talk books too? I'm here for it. Whatever you guys are watching, consuming, let me know. And as I mentioned before, you can reach me at DisgracelandPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And take a quick break. Back in a second. All right, let's recap, shall we? Number one, the obvious, the Jane Fonda episode of Badlands is available right now in your feed. Go check that out. Number two, next week in Badlands, the trailer for season nine. Yes, season nine of Badlands. Who are we covering in the new season? You're going to have to wait and find out in the trailer when it's released next week, okay? Number three, over in the Disgraceland feed, our serialized season on Wu-Tang Clan continues with all new episodes on Inspected Deck and Capadonna available for you right now. Number four, call me 617 Six 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 three eight to keep this Badlands movie conversation going. Number five, I got a split. I got other podcasts to record and I have to return some videotapes. So right now, a second dose of bliss for yours truly in honor of this week's Badlands episode, me reading the script from Clute. Interior, dining room, Tom Grumman house, day. Close shot on Tom Grumman, attractive young executive, sitting at the head of the dining room table, carving a turkey for Thanksgiving day dinner. There are joyous sounds of celebration. The camera pans around the table, revealing the happy family and guests. Among them are Clute and Cable. Camera stops at Mrs. Grunman, who sits at the foot of the table opposite her husband. She smiles across at him with pleasure. We cut to Tob Grunman, smiling back at him, and we cut back to a close-up of Mrs. Grunman looking back at her husband with love. We cut back to Tom Grunman's chair, and he the joyous sounds disappear on this cut. It appears that Tom Berman has disappeared from our eyes. We can stare in the next moment's mouth. He's gone. And the camera pans. Quit talking and start mixing. Cut it!